Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. The story thus far. Our heroes have escaped and are on the run. Harlequin, Anton, McAllen, and Tully infiltrated the Nankatsu Advanced Materials Laboratory to steal the core data files they hoped would give answers as to who was behind the deadly attack in Mumbai that killed Othello and exposed the Rebellion Command Center. But in the process of stealing the files, they are shocked by the discovery of a functioning keyhole. Keyholes are dimensional portals used by immortals to travel to any point on Earth instantaneously. But soon, McAllen's team come under attack from the laboratory guards they are forced to escape through the keyhole that transports them to the Nankatsu Submersible Proving Grounds, a secret facility 19,000 feet underwater. Things grow tense within the team, as each member's interest seems to diverge from one another. Anton is consumed with revenge against Jason Sterling, who he blames for Othello's death. Harlequin is being drawn deeper into a conflict that he has no interest in fighting. Tully wants to hunt for some clue as to the fate of his best friend, Overland St. Clair, and McAllen is forced to come to terms with the legacy of who and what she is, an immortal woman who shares a genetic pattern with Evangeline, the queen of all immortals. Meanwhile, high above the Dongshan Mountains in China, unbeknownst to Tully, his best friend Oberlin St. Clair staged a dramatic escape from the prison he's been held in for the past few weeks. Oberlin awoke from a drug-induced haze to find himself on the Idrisil, a secret airborne fortress commanded by Whit Roberts of the Black Door Group. Before escaping, Whit reveals that Black Door is desperately trying to capture McAllen Orsall. He also cryptically states that he is trying to save the world. But Oberlin got the jump on Whit, and the two Two men engaged in a violent struggle that led to the destruction of the Idrisil. Before fleeing in the escape pod, Oberlin snatched a briefcase that Wick claims to allow him to speak to gods. But elsewhere in the world, far in the remote South Pacific, 500 feet deep within a limestone atoll, is a research station called Acheron. Jason Sterling sits in the Icarus room, burned and blinded, contemplating his next move. And now, Chapter 16, Hunter and Prey. Somewhere near Beijing, China, Oberlin St. Clair crawled out of his escape pod into a damp rice paddy. His head hurt from the laundry list of injuries he had sustained over the past few hours. But he did manage to lift it just enough to see the Idrisil, the high-altitude blimp that served as the secret laboratory and listening station for Whit Roberts, streak across the sky in billowing flames. A muddy road lay a hundred feet in front of Oberlin that ran between a small cluster of farming huts and a dense juniper forest half a mile away. A small band of farmers were approaching from the south, shouting at him. They were screaming angrily in his direction and brandishing pointed sticks and camas, razor-sharp farming sickles, which even at this distance Oberlin could see would inflict lethal damage, especially on a weakened, unarmed opponent. Oh, shit. His left hand throbbed with phantom pain where his little finger used to be. He wanted 
wanted to get the hell away from these farmers as quick as possible, but his feet moved slowly in the thick mud, and what remaining strength Oberlin still possessed was failing. By the time Oberlin exited the muddy rice paddy, the angry farmers had covered half the distance between their farms and him, and he knew the farmers would overtake him before he could reach the safety of cover. Think, Oberlin. Do you know any Chinese? No. Do you have any money in your pockets? No. Do you know any self-defense? Yes. But are you in any condition to use it? No. Oberlin turned to start running towards the forest, but it was no use. His injured leg only permitted him to limp slowly. The mob of farmers was getting closer and louder. It would only be a few moments until they got to him, until they captured him, until they got him. A black Land Rover defender roared past the mob of farmers who desperately leapt out of the way to avoid being struck. The mud-splattered vehicle raced towards Oberlin, kicking up a rooster tail of dirt behind it. Oberlin knew that if he couldn't outrun the farmers, there was no way he was escaping this car that was hell-bent in his direction. He moved off to the side in the off chance that it might strike him. Instead, it came skidding to a stop a few feet in front of him. The passenger door flew open to reveal a slim Chinese woman with long black hair pointing a 9mm Beretta pistol directly at him. Get in! I beg your pardon? Get in! Who the hell are you? We don't have time for this. I'm not going anywhere with any more strangers! If I'm going to try- I'm going to try to explain your options. You just crashed an escape pod into a rice paddy and have a team of farmers heading towards you. I've got sharp eyes and counted at least 15 of them. Six of them are holding commas and fighting spears and Forgive me if I notice that you're not exactly ready for a scrap. But if through some miracle you make it through the farmers, then you'll have the police and Beijing intelligence fanning out all over the area, trying to understand why the hell a burning blimp with toxic chemicals and coded distress signals has illuminated every surveillance board from Beijing to Taiwan. All of these options are bad for you. What's good for you is me. Get in. I can provide you with medical attention and get you out of here fast. Oberlin stood his ground. Think carefully! Ah, shit! Oberlin climbed into the Defender. He hated feeling out of control. The money pressure of the Hail Mary, being threatened by the Yakuza, being kidnapped against his will. His left hand throbbed again, with pain where his smallest finger had been blown away. And now, once again, he was not in control of his life. Driving somewhere, with someone. Where are we going? As I said, we've got to keep you safe from them. Safe from who? You know who! The Black Door Group! If the farmers turned you over to the Chinese police, it would have only taken hours before Black Door worked through our corrupt police system to get you on an unmarked plane to one of their secret locations. Like throwing a penny in the ocean. If they get a hold of you, you could get lost forever. I haven't done anything to this Black Door Group! I'm just an, an engineer! And they fucking beat me! And ruined my... I don't care who gets hurt. If you're still thinking about this in terms of human lives, then you're using the wrong unit of measurement. This is about the fate of the world. What are you talking about? And where the fuck are we going? I'm taking you someplace where we can heal you and get you ready to move again. A place called Sanctuary. You've lost a lot of blood and your injuries are severe, to say the least. It's a very special hospital. No one will find us there. You didn't answer my question. What do you mean? The fate of the world? What is the Black Door Group trying to do? Let me start by asking you this. Have you ever been to Tibet? Tingri, Tibet, 10 years ago. 
A team of seven men was slowly trudging along the knife edge of Mount Shenglong. Six of the men wore thick one-piece down suits that bore the insignia of the Chinese military. The last man, who stood in the front of the pack, was shorter than the rest, but marched forward with equal vigor. The smaller man's name was Dr. Tang Sui. He had made an incredible discovery. Dr. Sui, we are approaching the coordinates. Dr. Sui looked down at his altimeter, which read 23,000 feet. The tallest man in the group walked over to stand inches away from the doctor. Captain, you understand the nature of this mission. I cannot tell you what we will face when we enter the cave. My men were handpicked by me personally as the most effective combat team. The Tibetan revolutionaries put up any resistance. Our strike force will cut them down where they stand. These Buddhist monks serve no other purpose than to incite the common people against Mother China. If your research is correct, and the rebels have obtained a weapon of mass destruction, then we will take the monastery by force. Hmm. I think they obtained something far more dangerous, Captain. I believe what we are looking for is just beyond the next ridge. We need to push on before we lose the sun. The temperature will drop to minus 50 degrees in a matter of hours. The captain nodded and relayed the information to his soldiers who nodded in terse agreement. These men would push on through any human limits if ordered by their commanding officer. Captain Tong was well-renowned in the elite circles of the Chinese Secret Service. He was known as an effective teacher of the deadly martial arts, but he was equally known for the ruthlessness in which he dealt with any disobedience. Even if the temperature did fall to 50 below, he knew his men would march. Dr. Sui, have you located our entry point? If you cannot give us a clear bearing, I am ordering my men to break camp for the night. They must be fully rested in order to execute- Just one more moment, Captain. The doctor removed his hood and winced as the icy blast struck his cheeks and ears. He reached into his backpack and put on a visor that resembled a set of night vision goggles. The world instantly fell into darkness around him, but approximately 500 meters ahead of the men, beside a barren outcropping of rock, faint red and green vapor hovered over the rocks like a dim halo. I've detected a heat signature 500 meters on the west side of the core. I think we've found what we are looking for. And what exactly are we looking for? Why has the Chinese Politburo sent an astronomer on a military mission to neutralize a Buddhist uprising? Because your superiors, in their wisdom, realize that the uprising could entail much more than a small faction of rebellious monks. Come quickly! Assemble your men inside the outcropping. I'll give you a full briefing as to the true nature of our mission. Less than one hour later, the seven men had reached the outcropping and discovered a narrow crack in the rock face that barely permitted passage of the men and their equipment. They pushed and squeezed their way through, squashing all thoughts of claustrophobia out of their mind as they walked sideways, scraping their noses against the cold stone walls. The tight passage widened into an antechamber off to the side, where the soldiers quickly unpacked their gear and removed their alpine suits. Strangely, the temperature was now almost 60 degrees, and each man found himself perspiring heavily. The doctor called them all over to a darkened corner of the chamber. Gentlemen, while well, I realize that each of you will only take orders from Captain Tong, you're probably wondering why this mission has included an astrological scientist. Well, I'm afraid I'm more than a mere astronomer, and we are dealing with more than a rebellious Tibetan terrorist cell. As many of you might know, Several years ago, the People's Government began to invest heavily in researching the viability of advancing the Chinese space program to include the manned flight of our Tychonauts. There have been ambitions of not just putting a man in orbit, but also planting a Chinese flag on the moon, or even further. 
The moon flight required a complete overhaul of our satellite and communication system in installing the most advanced technology that our research teams have ever created. In doing so, some of our research satellites stumbled upon a very strange transmission. A very faint signal, if you will. That signal originated from this area high in the Himalayas, near some of the most remote Tibetan villages on Earth. The signal was directed towards the Soraxian Nebula, located near the center of our galaxy. What was more astonishing is that several days later, another signal left the Soraxian region heading towards Earth. It would seem someone outside of our world was speaking to someone inside of it. Dr. Sui, how is that possible? Well, as you can imagine, I was immediately fascinated. The idea that someone on Earth was having extraterrestrial communication was simply extraordinary. But as you can imagine, our military leaders were highly alarmed that whoever this person was, they were probably Tibetan and most likely enemies of the state. They were determined that the first communication with an alien civilization must not lie in the hands of a revolutionary. So the military set up a secret initiative called Group 9 that I am the chief of. But why didn't the military immediately destroy the source of the transmission? Because Group 9 has three directives. One, to commandeer the technology used to communicate with Sorax. Two, to eliminate any people with any knowledge of the communication. And three, to decipher exactly what was being said. Once we knew the transmission source of the signal, we deployed all of our resources to decipher and code break the signal to understand what was being said. The obvious fear was that Tibetan revolutionaries would somehow obtain access to alien technology that they could use as a weapon against China. Oh, that's ridiculous. No, Lieutenant, it isn't. In addition to being an astronomer, I have advanced degrees in prime number theory. Much of the mathematical basis for astronomy can also be utilized for cryptography and code breaking. Prior to working for the government, I studied linguistics in ancient civilizations and became one of the best decipherers of ancient text. The signal being transmitted was like a type of uh, audio hieroglyphic, but with three dimensions to it. Bear in mind that our most sophisticated satellites were barely able to detect the signal, so the audio record we had was very incomplete. Were we able to decipher any of the message? Bits and pieces, but only one complete sentence. Doctor, what did the signal say? The message said, the weapon is here. Before proceeding down the main corridor that branched off the antechamber, each soldier checked and rechecked the walking arsenal that they all carried. Their weapons were modified for special forces operations, thus being smaller and more powerful than the firearms carried by conventional law enforcement. Each soldier had side holsters on both sides of his waist, packing QSC-92 laser-sighted pistols, along with a Fairbin Sykes fighting knife sheathed in a quick-release scabbard from his shoulder. The black flak vest each soldier wore contained specialized pockets for grenades and extra ammunition. Two of the soldiers wore backpacks filled with C4 explosive and detonation devices. Because the captain was not fully briefed as to the full nature of the mission, he armed his men to the T in order to face any threat that presented itself. The corridor was low, but wide enough for the soldiers to creep forward in a two-by-two -two formation. Two of the largest soldiers were at point with the Doctor and Captain Tong directly behind them. The team was issued low-voltage LED headlamps that glowed a dull red that only illuminated the two feet directly in front of them. It made the walls of the cave look crimson and lined with menace. Into the gates of hell we tread. Is this what awaits us beyond this world? Damnation. What are we awakening? 
gentle chanting could be heard ahead. Captain Tong turned sharply and gave the hand signal for absolute silence. The soldiers slinked forward, making no sound as they moved. Only the doctor, who was not trained in such stealth, could be heard breathing over the low drum of the chanting. There were voices ahead. Many, many voices. My God! Over the ledge, they saw it. A large silver sphere lay elevated on top of a stone podium, surrounded by over 200 monks who were kneeling in reverence. Their chanting echoed off the limestone walls and surrounded the strike force who now realized they were outnumbered by almost 30 to 1. Captain, look! The soldier pointed downward towards a rack of Chang's silver-tipped spears. They were positioned for use. Who are these people? These are not pacifist monks. These are trained warriors, prepared to defend their lives. But what? Why are they here? The doctor removed a small grey device from his satchel and held it close to his body like a smoker trying to light his cigarette in the wind. This sphere, this is their weapon. This is their Excalibur. We must destroy it before they can use it against Mother China. These Tibetan monks are rebels and they must be dealt with harshly. We must crush. In his urgency, a small pebble was kicked off the captain's boots and bounced lightly off one of the monk's shaven heads. The confused monk looked up and caught the briefest glimpse of the intruders before they pulled back into the passage. Gongzi! In a blur of motion, the Chang fighting spears were distributed hand over hand to all the monks who brandished their weapons along with polished metal bows and arrows. There are too many of them. Shut up. If we... Silent soldier. We have the high ground. This is our battle to lose. Unload everything! The monks dashed left and right to avoid the deadly barrage of bullets, but it was no use. The captain was right. They did have the advantage of superior field position. The monks ran up the narrow path towards the strike force in a single file, making them easy and pathetic target practice for assault rifles, spewing bullets at 120 rounds per minute. The bodies of the dead rained down on the living that was still guarding the grey sphere. This is a slaughter. The monks know their defenses and they guard this treasure. This sphere. I know it comes from someplace other than Earth. What do these people know about it? Enough to die in the cold tomb of rock within. Look out! A large volley of arrows was shot upwards at the invading strike force. The captain dove and tackled the doctor who seemed mesmerized by the spear. Fall back! The team pulled back into the antechamber for protection, but not everyone did so in time. Two of Captain Tong's soldiers were caught by the razor-sharp knives being thrown at them, one catching a blade directly in the throat, and the other in his left eye, which caused him to fall over the ledge to his death. The angle of fire can't reach us from within the chamber, but neither can ours. I remind you that we have other weapons. The captain exchanged one glance at his three remaining soldiers, and each instantly understood. The soldiers and captain reached into their flak vest and pulled out modified RKG-3 grenades and tossed them over the ledge into the pit of remaining monks. Several monks were thrown high enough to be seen from the ledge where the strike force was holding position. Again! But only two of the soldiers got their grenades off. The other soldier had their arms wrenched backwards by two bald monks that had surprised them from behind. The doctor saw a small metal door off to the side and realized there must be another access route up from the sphere. While the doctor ran to slam the metal door shut, a fury of fists erupted from the monks trying to kill the captain and his men. The captain and his three soldiers were among the most highly trained combat soldiers in the Chinese military, but they seemed to be losing in hand-to-hand -hand combat to the monks, whose powerful limbs had become blurs of motion, throwing deadly kicks and punches that the soldiers struggled to block. 
The soldiers knew they were fighting for their lives. The first monk exploded upwards with a roundhouse kick that struck one of the soldiers' noses so hard that his nasal cartilage shot through the frontal lobe of his brain. Blood sprayed on the wall of the chamber and on other soldiers. What seemed initially like it would be a slaughter was quickly turning against the Chinese soldiers. Even with three soldiers against the two monks, the doctor knew it was a short matter of time before the superior martial arts of the monks prevailed. The doctor acted quickly and dashed to grab the handgun from the fallen soldier and using both hands pointed the pistol at the first monk and pulled the trigger. The doctor was no marksman, but the headshot he was aiming for was good enough to be a square chest shot, throwing the monk back against the far wall of the chamber before collapsing in a wet heap. Now there was just one monk left against three Chinese soldiers. His style of fighting quickly changed from offense to defense, but the loss of his comrade meant the tides were turning against him, and despite his superior skill, it would only be a matter of time before he missed a block and his enemies got the better of him. Finally, they did. The captain managed to land a devastating two-finger punch to a vital spot an inch and a half above the monk's heart. The monk recoiled for a full second, giving the captain enough time to unsheathe his knife and land a sweeping cut across the monk's throat. We're not done yet. We have more monks to kill. All the remaining soldiers threw another two volleys of the RKG-3 grenades over the ledge and then approached the ramp leading downwards to the sphere. The three soldiers and the doctor each carried assault rifles in both hands. The rounds that exploded from them had little accuracy, but this was a volume game. The strike force began literally mowing down the few monks that still remained. The team ran down the ramp, circling the room, leaving no room for any monk to hide. But the last of the monks weren't going down without a fight, and several more throwing blades were launched at the team again, catching another one of the captain's men. But by the time the three remaining members of the team reached the floor where the sphere lay, all motion in the room had stopped. The floor was a bloody sea of bodies, and the doctor desperately wanted to remove his flak jacket to escape the rapidly rising heat in the room. The large chamber was now sweltering with metal heat, perspiration and blood. The doctor approached the sphere and could feel the power of the device. No lights, no surface markings, nothing. Just a smooth metallic sphere that- Doctor, look at the pedestal. What is this? What does it mean? The pedestal had strange carvings that permeated every inch of its surface. Where the sphere was utterly smooth and featureless, the pedestal was covered with carved depictions of men battling and screaming out in pain. Bodies and limbs were intertwined. In fact, it almost seemed like the pedestal itself was constructed entirely of a giant pile of tiny granite bodies. The doctor slowly paced the circumference of the pedestal, but despite the heat in the room, one scene on one of the pedestal's sides sent the coldest chill up the doctor's spine. There were countless bodies arranged in a circle that was surrounding a small sphere the size of a tennis ball. The artistry was astonishing, and the doctor could plainly see that their faces were crying out in horrible pain. Outside the perimeter of the depicted dying figures were seven slightly larger men shooting beams from their hands into the crowd. This was their prophecy. They knew we were coming. Doctor, what is this? This artifact? Why would hundreds of men die to protect this metal ball? What significance or, or, or power does it possess that justifies the loss of four of my best men? I think the answer might be over here. All three men came around to the side of the pedestal where the doctor was standing. There was one small part of it that was not covered by the tiny faces and bodies of people in pain. It was a flat section with strange markings that resembled some combination of Chinese kanji and Egyptian hieroglyphics. One long stream of symbols stood out. Can you read what that word means, Doctor? Yes. Yes, I can. 
extermination. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. So... I don't get it. A Chinese military operation busted into a sacred shrine of Buddhist monks, killed everyone and stole their artifacts. I hope I'm not offending you, but you guys do that all the time. I don't see what any of this has to do with me. There's a bit more to the story, Mr. St. Clair. The sphere was taken from the secret temple in Tingri to a military base in Qishan. When we first tried to transfer it out of the cave, we realized that it was nearly impossible to move due to its extreme weight. So it was a pretty heavy sucker. I'd hate to be the porter that At over 50,000 tons, it was heavier than any known element found on Earth. I don't think I understand. What are you- Mr. St. Clair, the Tibetan monks were hoarding an alien artifact, one that they prophesized could lead to the end of the world, a weapon of unknown power. Great. So now the Chinese government stole a weapon of mass destruction. No, Mr. St. Clair. We lost it. What? After the raid in Tingri, we brought the artifact back to a Chinese intelligence headquarters base in Beijing. We ran every conceivable test we could on it. But besides being the most incredibly dense material, it seemed to periodically give off some sort of signal. What kind of signal? We couldn't even begin to decode it, but we were able to track the signal. Where was it sending a signal? To outer space? No, to the Pacific Ocean, to the Marianas Trench. And whoever is down there is talking to the Black Door Group. Back in Acheron, the secret testing grounds of the Black Door Group, Jason Sterling sat alone in the remains of the Icarus Room. 
The room was almost pitch black. The only illumination came from the faint LED lights of the machinery and computers that still worked after the explosion. After the monstrous enforcers, giant zombie-like humans with whom Jason Sterling had established a full cerebral connection, were blinded and burned alive in the slums of Mumbai, thus overloading the mental transference interface. Now, Jason's reddened skin burned with irritation. It always burned now. The scarlet color in his skin was matched only by those in his eyes. His pupils were almost invisible against his blood-filled irises, but now was not the time to be preoccupied with the searing sensation of heat that still came in intense waves. Jason Sterling was worried. He had sent an urgent message to Wit Roberts over five hours ago. Wit never took this long to report back, especially during a crisis. The Idrasil had disappeared from Jason's tracking monitor, and McAllen also continued to elude capture. Things were going wrong, horribly wrong. We have to free them from Levi. There must be other methods of extraction. How do we kill these damn immortals? How could they've ever come into being? How could they? His thoughts were interrupted by a blinking light on his console. Wit, where have you been? What happened? My link with Idrasil has been severed. I can't find its coded transponder signal anywhere. Jason, it's gone. Wit, report. What's happened to you? He stole it. it, it it's gone. What? The Idrasil? We can self-destruct it remotely. We can build another communication station. A better one. That... No, no, Jason. The briefcase. Oberlin St. Clair escaped with the briefcase. Jason sat back in his chair, stunned, his mind reeling. Uh, Jason, if they... We'll get it back. If, if Oberlin uses the briefcase to establish clear communications with... Communications the... with whom? He never know who he was talking to. He wouldn't believe it if they told him. Besides, he need to get back to establish a clear connection. But that's exactly it. What if he finds a way? Or what if he discovers another reception point on Earth that will enable the communication? That's absurd. He doesn't know what he has. He's smart, Jason. And he may get help to become even smarter. Before the Idrasil was destroyed, I picked up a high-amplitude carrier signal being beamed from a defunct weather satellite over Mongolia. Its frequency was well over 4,000 petahertz. I didn't have enough time to run it through a decryption program, but only one group uses a frequency so high. Black door. It wasn't one of our frequencies we typically use. No weather satellite from the 70s could generate enough power to produce such a dense signal, so I knew it must be one of the other doors. Do you have any idea which one it could be? It's hard to tell. Door 3 specialized in Sino-American affairs, but I can only imagine what their focus is now. Haven't detected any activity for them for some time. They once had a very talented director there. But Black Door turning on its own? The signal was transmitting to a location near Beijing, not far from the Idrasil crash site. It's like they were tracking me. If it is them, if it is another group within Black Door, why would they be cooperating with the Chinese? I don't know. Well, can you go over and please talk to someone- I can't leave this station. At least not until the light fades. Wit, I can't be near any light. It's all the burning, Wit. Jason, I know I'm wounded, but I can control this. I can bring Oberlin in. He can't be far, and if, if one of the other Black Doors is helping him, well, I know all the tricks in the book. My question to you is, how big a war do you want to start? Is Black Door ready to go to war with each other? Black Door or not, none of it will matter if we can succeed in our mission. I mean, that's our plan. That's our only plan. That's our way out of this. Any initiatives by the other doors will be made irrelevant by the power waiting for us in Leviathan. Our mission is to eliminate the Immortals and the threat they represent to the directors of the Black Door group and the Free World. We tried killing them directly, which proved to be messy and usually resulted in unacceptable collateral damage on our side. We tried to stoke the civil war between the Edeners and the Rebellion, between Evangeline and Sension. But now a new factor has been thrown into the equation. Callan Orsel. If Sension is successful in controlling and hiding her, then he won't need Evangeline anymore. The conflicts of the Immortals will be over. He'll be able to hide on some island or 
tiny European city that would give him a castle to buy and he'll wallow in political immunity from any efforts to extradite him. That's if we could ever find him again, and if we do, he'll be too well entrenched for us to launch a successful strike mission. I mean, don't you see, Wit? With McCallan on his side, he doesn't need to come out in the open. He can hide. He can wait and hide. But for how long? Forever. He's immortal, Wit. They're all immortal. They can hide in a cave for a hundred years with just food and water, and wait for all their mortal enemies to die of old age. Think about it, Wit. One hundred years to an immortal is a blink of an eye to you and me. They can solve any problem with time. Yield it as a weapon. But the weapon is being dulled. Explain. The signal! The rogue Starstone! We've taken time away from the immortals. The signal that was released will eventually kill them all. That was their plan. Unless the immortals can get to the Starstone to shut it off. But how could they? Of course, McAllen. McAllen Orsel has the ability to shut down the Starstone because she's Evangeline's clone. Senshin knows that by controlling her, he controls the fate of all immortals. Jason, I'll find them. Wherever they are, I will find no. them. No, no. You focus on Oberlin St. Clair. We must get that briefcase back. We can't allow him to make contact with Leviathan. If anyone finds out the true nature of our mission, everyone will seek to destroy us. But if we succeed in the rescue mission, then we will destroy everyone. I'll find Oberlin. I'll find him. What will you do? I'm gonna go try again to find McAllen also. It might be time to extract another pound of flesh from our mole, our little traitor. You focus on Oberlin and getting back the briefcase. I'm going to go straight to the source and see what Senshin knows. He has no idea that his closest confidant has already betrayed him. Whip snapped the face of his two-way video cell phone closed. He slowly brought his hand to his head to touch where his ear had been, but stopped before he made contact. The pain was bad, but he had learned to block pain out during his assassin training for the Black Door Group. What he hadn't counted on was the loss of equilibrium. Every so often, he felt a cold blast of air hit his inner ear that caused the world to spin violently around him, knocking him to the ground. I have to accept that I'm physically compromised to avoid physical conflict and survive a fight in this state. Think, think. No good in this state. I have to heal myself. I need to fix what's broken i need sanctuary sanctuary the ultimate hospital for the wicked there was one in most major international cities healthcare for spies wit called a number he swore he would never use but he knew how it worked after a long tone wit used his keypad to enter his exact gps coordinates then press pound a confirmation tone replied back no voices, no identities. Sanctuary, a private group that was originally set up for the benefit of the quote, good guys, CIA, MI6, Mossad, that needed healthcare in the field. Good for gunshot wounds when a normal hospital would attract too much attention, or when you were deep undercover. But soon, the anonymity of Sanctuary began to attract the attention of more nefarious types. Criminals, mafia, deposed dictators. Sanctuary's prices were astronomical, but price was no longer an object when you worked for the Black Door Group. 20 minutes later, an unmarked van approached on the dirt road that Wit had finally collapsed on. It was approximately the size of a standard ambulance, but was completely devoid of any markings that would betray its Hippocratic intentions. Two Chinese men and one woman quickly exited and secured Wit to a reclining stretcher. Another man with an earpiece stood at the back of the van, brandishing an AK-47 assault rifle. Wit could hear from the sound of the van door as it closed that this was a fully armoured vehicle. The vehicle ran off towards downtown Beijing. 
account code BLACKDOOR23937 TANGO ZEBRA. The young woman sat beside Wit at a small computer workstation in the back of the ambulance, and after entering Wit's code, gave a quick nod to the other men staring back at her. The van raced over Li Sha Bridge and entered the city center, pulling into a garage of a beautiful office tower on Meitei Avenue. So this is where they hide us, huh? Spies, the villains, the unknown soldiers. They hide us in plain view, where no one would think to look for us. <laughs> oh. The van drove down several levels of a circular driveway before approaching a row of six large freight elevators, large enough for the van to pull into. It pulled into the third one, and Whit was surprised to feel the elevator go further down instead of up. After a long descent, the van pulled out to a narrow loading dock where three more Chinese men took possession of Wit, who was still strapped to the stretcher and starting to feel dizzy from the loss of blood. They walked him to a white door with a red light above it. After 30 seconds, the light turned green and the door opened. They pushed Wit forward through an x-ray machine to verify that he was not carrying any concealed weapons. After all, this was a hospital for the most wanted men in the world. Each patient was taken to a separate private room with heavily reinforced doors. Each hallway was monitored so that no patient ever saw another patient. Saddam Hussein could be getting his appendix taken out in the room next to Donald Rumsfeld and neither would be the wiser. Complete, utter and absolute privacy was the unbreakable rule of sanctuary. Anyone who could pay the fees that rose to tens of millions of dollars would be admitted. Wit often thought how much could be accomplished by raiding one of the sanctuaries, but there were several problems with that. One, they were very difficult to find and move locations often. Two, anybody entering sanctuary was scanned for any weapon, recording or tracking device. And most importantly, sanctuary served a vital role in the intelligence community, despite its catering to criminals as well. The top operatives at intelligence agencies were given the secret account number to use in case of last resort, life-threatening injuries. By conducting a raid, that agency would forever be banned from utilizing Sanctuary's services, and any agents held in its care anywhere in the world would automatically be killed. There was always a quiet debate in the community as to whether Sanctuary ever capitalized on the incredible privilege of information it enjoyed if it passed along knowledge of the identity and location of its patients. There's not much between a spy who's almost dead and a spy who is dead. Immortals, Senshun, even the Black Doors would spend millions to know where I am now. Vulnerable, weak, defenseless. Who's to say Sanctuary won't take a bribe? Who's to say I won't wake up after surgery? After they did everything they could? After I end up just another dead spy? But Wit knew there was no choice. No alternative if he was to get the briefcase back. He needed his strength, and he needed his balance. He needed to fix what was broken so if the time came, he could give 100% of his physical capabilities to accomplish his mission. The mission. Always the mission. After being wheeled left and right through compartmentalized corridors designed to prevent any contact between patients Wit was placed in a white, sterile room and helped to sit on an examining table. Nice room, just like the one I put Oberlin in. Ah, sweet irony. If he only knew where I was now, he would get a good laugh out of this. A Chinese doctor entered the room and mentioned for Wit to disrobe. Glass from the Idrisil's laboratory was embedded in countless places on Wit's body. His windpipe still felt obstructed from Oberlin's first attack. His legs and right hip were covered in second-degree burns. And of course, there was his ear. You! Ear! Legs! Neck! 
fix. It was clear the doctor spoke perfect English by the frown he displayed from being spoken to in this way. But for the amount of money he was paid, the doctor knew better than to say anything and provide the highest level of care. A nurse entered, locked the door behind her, and placed an IV in Wit's arm. While the doctor and nurse looked on, Wit, battered, bruised and defeated, finally succumbed to sleep. Wit awoke, alone in his room. He touched the bandages, now secure where his ear used to be. They must have doused it with lidocaine or some other topical anaesthetic, because it no longer throbbed with pain. But Wit didn't care about the pain, or even the loss of hearing. He was noticeable now, possessing a profoundly recognisable trait. A man with a missing ear. It would make undercover work in the intelligence community virtually impossible. Sure, he could get some sort of prosthetic, they must have one, he thought, but it came back to having to wear a costume to accomplish what he used to excel at naturally. Good morning, patient. Morning? Yes, it's 8.30 in the morning. How long was I out? We performed surgery to repair some of the nerve damage on your leg and trachea. The glass was very difficult. I said how long? The surgery was five hours, but you've been asleep for 15. What am I on? Oxycodone and penicillin. Not to mention the Demerol injection you were given about three hours ago. W when am I leaving? You need bed rest or the burns won't heal. We'd like to have you here for five days during which- Not happening. I need out now. <sighs> As you wish. I can arrange for a secure extraction in two hours. In the meantime, you know the rules of sanctuary. You must stay in your room until that time. If you need anything or feel any pain, you can call one of the nurses to help you. The doctor left the room, and Wit heard the tumblers in the door lock shut. He painfully lowered himself back down to lay on the padded table he was sitting on. Fifteen hours? Fucking Oberlin could be halfway across the world right now. Especially if someone from one of the other doors is helping I've you. I've gotta get that briefcase back. Maybe they didn't get far. Oberlin was hurt as bad as I was. I swept his leg and nailed his pinky off. I'm not sure if I landed any other shots on him, but he'd have to be slowing down anybody who's helping him. Wait, Wait of course. They're not gonna risk getting slowed down by an injured civilian. They're gonna get him fixed up first. Maybe they have their own infirmary, but maybe they, maybe they brought him here. Yeah, yes, but but would they risk bringing a wanted man into the same building as his executioner? No, they wouldn't. Not even under sanctuary rules, unless... Unless they thought I was already dead. Oh, my god, of course! Nobody except Jason Sterling thinks I'm alive. Someone was tracking the Idrasil as it went down in flames. But nobody knows that I was able to set a self-destruct sequence before it crashed into the ground. The detonation blocks the signal of my escape pod. Nobody knows I'm alive. Wit's spirit surged with excitement. Dead. People thought he was dead. That made his job unbelievably easier. The delicious thought of being a person who did not exist washed over Wit, intoxicating him with the thoughts of invisibility. If people think I'm dead, then whoever is helping Oberlin wouldn't think twice about bringing him here. And if he's here, so is the briefcase. Wit leapt from the table he was sitting on and stifled the pain that shot through his body. He stabbed at the call button for the nurse. Yes, patient. Are you in pain? No. No, I'm not. He spun across the room, grabbing her by the throat and shoved her against the wall. In that act, he broke the most sacred rule of sanctuary. He was committing violence on neutral ground. Any Black Door agent in any sanctuary in any part of the world would be given an injection and killed by his doctor. This was the deterrent that had been effective for decades in sanctuary, assuring that any patient could be guaranteed anonymous care and safety. But he had broken that, and now become a rogue agent from the intelligence community, even from the fringes from which the Black Door group operated. He just gave a death sentence to every Black Door agent worldwide that was in a sanctuary. But that was exactly what he wanted. You listen to me now. 
I'm seconds from crushing your windpipe. Uh. Think of me as a madman that can't be reasoned with. All I want to know is if someone from Blackdoor is here. I know you recognize the name. Blackdoor, here, yes? All right, time for you to die then. I wish you could have been more helpful. Please, no, I tell, I say there's Blackdoor here, yes. Woman. Woman with man. Where? Where? <laughs> Two floors down. You'll come with me, and you'll do exactly as I say, understand? <laughs> yes. The nurse unlocked the door to Wit's room and gently smiled at the guard outside. Excuse me, would you help me lift the patient? He's too heavy for me. As soon as the guard entered the room, he felt a sharp thud against the top of his <clears throat> spine, throwing him off balance. Before he could gather what was happening, Wit had gotten a hold of his chin from behind <clears throat> and twisted the man's neck all the way around. His corpse fell to the floor at the nurse's feet. I think he could use some of your medical attention. Why don't you see what you can do? Wit grabbed the guard's standard issue MP5 firearm and bolted out of his room, locking it behind him. The hallways were so compartmentalized that he didn't run into anyone until he got to the elevator. The elevator guard was so shocked to see a bandaged patient running straight at him brandishing a firearm that he didn't get a chance to raise his weapon before Whip tapped him twice in his left temple. This has never happened. No one has ever instigated a firefight within Sanctuary and I'm prepared for this. There is no protocol. I must ignore my pain and act swiftly. Shock and awe. Whip rode the elevator down two flights but could hear gunfire erupting before the elevator doors even opened. The other black door agent. They must be trying to kill her because of my actions. I'm flushing her out. The elevator doors opened, and Wit saw a tall Asian woman holding two MP5s, one in each hand, running away from the elevator to another section of the hallway. Four bodies were strewn casually on the floor while two other guards ran out of the other chambers to attack the woman. They opened fire, but she quickly fell to her knees, sliding below their line of fire, and let two shots out from her own guns, dropping each of the guards who were clutching the gaping, bloody holes in their throats. The coast is clear. Move! Now! Oberlin warily emerged from one of the medical chambers, clutching a briefcase and hurried to catch up to his protector. Wit stared intently. The briefcase. Oberlin. He could take the shot. Clean line of fire. He cocked the gun back and took aim. But Miley heard the hammer being pulled back before he could pull the trigger. She let loose a barrage of bullets streaking at Wit, driving him back into the elevator. Damn! 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 Wit waited one full second and dove headfirst out of the elevator exhausting what remained in his clip in an instant, but he hit nothing. He hit nothing because there was nothing there, or more precisely, no body. Miley and Oberlin were nowhere to be seen. They had gotten away again. No! Wit limped as fast as he could to the end of the hallway, which veered off to the right, leading to another elevator bay. I've lost them. I've fucking lost them. Wit walked back to the central hallway, where most of the guards' corpses had congregated. They were outside one of the medical chambers that featured blood splattered on the walls. This must be where they kept her. Wit kicked over one of the corpses and found a small black satchel that the guard's body had covered up. He grabbed the bag, ripped it open, and poured through the contents, trying to find some clue about the person that had stolen his prey from him twice. He examined the handbag contents but found only one item of interest, a receipt for two train tickets on the Qinghai-Tibet Railway from Beijing to Lhasa, the capital of Tibet. Tibet. You have been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, 
go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price, and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists unlocks this holy grail of medicine by reverse engineering the genomes of all mammals, creating an animal with organs perfectly suitable for human transplantation. They envision a docile herd animal, but one team member had another, darker vision. This ancestor is anything but docile. The team's work spawns something big, something evil, something very, very hungry. Ancestor is a complete serialized fiction podcast by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, with all episodes available. Binge the entire story now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.